0: A Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your
1: way. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Today we'll be speaking with Baseball Immortality. That's right, Baseball Immortality. And that'll be next, here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast.
2: When you need someone to listen, a lawyer you know and trust. Congratulations to all the Minnesota businesses that scraped through the last year. It sure hasn't been easy, but we've done it together. And while we certainly need to move forward, it's good to reflect on what we've been through and the many losses. Here at Bradshaw and Bryant, we held a lot of Zoom meetings, increased our phone calls, and have done our best to keep up with all the changes while continuing to provide quality work. We'd like to thank everyone that turned to us with their personal injury and criminal needs, as well as the courtrooms for bringing the community back together to serve justice. We look forward to being part of Minnesota's growth and success for many years to come. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. I hope you're never injured in a collision, but if you are, don't sign anything till you've talked to us. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at MinnesotaPersonalInjury.com.
0: Seeking justice for the injured. Bradshaw and Bryant.
2: Those San Francisco nights Were the best in town Just by chance you crossed the diamond with the pearl You turned it on
1: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As in my opening, I said we'd be talking with baseball immortality, and I'm not lying to you. We're talking to a Hall of Fame baseball player at the major league level, college baseball level, and he also is a member of the University of Minnesota M Club Hall of Fame. Of course, I'm talking about the one and only Paul Molitor. How you doing, Paul?
3: Hey, good to be with you this morning. I'm doing very, very well. Uh, it's always a little humbling to hear a, a nice introduction mm-hmm. like that,
1: but I do appreciate it. Well, it's I understand the humbling part, but it's all true. Yeah, let me uh, for those who don't maybe don't know Paul. Let me give you some uh, highlights from Paul outside of the Hall of Fame in Major League Baseball. He had over uh, three thousand hits. 3,319 to be exact, Uh, 234 home runs, 504 stolen bases, which is a lost art in the game and something we may touch later on, and um, over 1,300 RBIs. So a very productive uh, career. Uh, Paul, can you kind of give our listeners an origin story about growing up in St. Paul, Minnesota?
3: Well, I, I'm really, I'm really glad and uh, and grateful to have grown up in St. Paul. I think it's a just a tremendous community. Uh, opportunities there, there the people, the city leaders, from the mayor's office down through, um, you know, the uh, the staff over there. They really take a lot of pride in making it a very family-oriented community. Um, they're very. Uh, supportive of their parks and recreation programs which obviously gives young children or young people a chance to participate in a plethora of activities including sports and uh, you know I grew up in a large family over there I had six sisters and a brother and so okay. you know it's it was a large group and uh, but yeah I was fortunate because I came up through a systems where the coaches were very dedicated to to the young people they had a chance to have influence and in, uh, in lives and, and I benefited from that. So like a lot of kids, you know, I had dreams as, as a youngster of, of, uh, pursuing athletics, as far as I could take it, I I guess it was more of a, of a dream than it was what I thought might actually in reality happen. But from, you just climb the ladder one rung at a time and, and see how high it takes you. And I was fortunate that, that I, it was able to take me to the top of my, of my chosen field, which was, that was, the
1: great game of baseball. Um, I understand the large family part, part. I'm the seventh of nine, so oh totally, yeah, you know, you know that. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. So, um, let me ask you this: Why did you gravitate to baseball, and did you play other sports growing up as a kid?
3: I really did love all sports. Um, you know, I I I kind of missed the fact that you know kids would seasonally play a different sport. Now there's a lot of pressure to focus on one at younger ages. I don't think that's a good trend for our, for our young people, but yes, I I played, uh, I played basketball uh, and in high school, I also played soccer. I loved football, but I had an injury that prevented me from playing when I was starting my, the chapter of high school of my life. And so I I said, you know, I got to do something in the fall and soccer was a nice alternative and, the benefit was it really helped in coordination especially foot coordination and by the time basketball would roll around in november i was always in really good shape because it's soccer you do right. a lot of running yeah but yeah th- those were my my three high school sports uh i think baseball kind of was always at the forefront i i was a big listener of twins games back when i was a kid i you know have a little transistor radio when i was doing my homework and Listening to for the older people out there, you know the Herb Carneels of, of the world, and um, just followed the Twins very religiously as a kid. I had the boyhood boyhood heroes of people like Tony Oliva and Harmon Killebrew and Rod Carew, and and you know it just kind of gave, gave me something to aspire to. But I, I I just think that in playing all the sports, that I always thought that baseball was the one that I had the most passion for.
1: Yeah, I totally also again understand as a young young kid i would uh, you know my summers were spent listening to jack buck and harry Carey in st louis and um pretty good yeah and uh you know listening to great baseball games and and dreaming about that and also i'd like to hammer home to uh parents of, of children who may be listening to this sure. let your children play different sports you know, the cross-training is beneficial. Don't burn them out on one sport. You know, it's, it seems to be a social, as I call it, a social ill or social social disease that everybody wants to chase the chase the scholarship and chase the money and burn their kids out in one sport. Let them do different sports and let them relax from that. maybe that one sport that they really care about.
3: Well, I, I totally concur with that. I, I think that we have trended in the direction of, um, specializing in one sport at too young of an age, and I do think burnout does set in. Um, and I try to, you know, when given an opportunity, and you know, speak out on that. I I think part of the enjoyment of the youth was the fact that you know you you would look forward to you know when the snow would melt in the spring and you get your glove out and start thinking about baseball, and
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know, in the in the fall, you know, you you couldn't wait to what it would be football or soccer or whatever whatever sport you know drew you in um i I do understand that in some individual sports where you are going to probably max out as a teenager whether you know a figure skater or a gymnast mm-hmm. that some of those might individual sports might command a little bit more time as far as your annual calendar is concerned. but other than that, the team sports I, I feel bad these these parents that it's it, part of it is their responsibility to let their kids play at multiple sports. Mm-hmm. But they're getting so much pressure from coaches that your kid will be passed up or he won't make a team unless he goes to this camp during this offseason. And it's just kind of um, spiraled into that. And I do think part of it, like you said, is chasing scholarships and things of that like. But well-rounded, more opportunities, different sports. I think it all adds to not only the enjoyment, but, you know, a more well-rounded person um, and more specifically an athlete.
1: Well, the other thing parents have to understand about people who are pushing more leagues and more camps and whatnot, that's their source of income. So, of course, they're going to push it, you know, which is a sad statement.
3: Yeah, there's no doubt that that's one of the factors as well.
1: Yeah. Okay, so you and I uh, share a thing in common. We're both in the uh, University of uh, Minnesota M Club, and uh, why did you choose the University of Minnesota
3: well, I'll tell you, I'm, you know, coming out of high school, I started to maybe have some belief that someday I might get a chance to play some form of professional baseball, even if it was only a minor league stint. Uh, I wasn't sure how far it was going to take me, but I knew that I, high school had gone well enough that I might have opportunities, and I was drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals coming out of high school. Oh. But I was a very, I was a very low round pick, okay. and. Uh, And I, to be honest with you, the numbers were, I think they offered me like $4,000 and I Mm -hmm. I asked for 10, I asked for 10. Right. And when the university of Minnesota came forward with an opportunity to pay for my tuition, I thought that had tremendous value. Um, Dave Winfield, who had, I grew up in the same neighborhood in St. Paul. Mm -hmm. I had followed his gopher career. Um, He was a senior in college when I was a senior in high school. And they went to the College World Series, and I remember listening to the games and just thinking it'd be so cool to be able to wear a uniform of your home state and play collegiately. So, when the things, when it kind of fell through with the Cardinals, um, you know, my my best option was was certainly to try to continue my education and play some college baseball, and that's and that's what led me over to uh, to Dinky Town.
1: Well, it's 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 an uh, interesting fact that uh, the little town of. Little city of St. Paul, in the area you guys grew up in, had three Baseball Hall of Famers yourself, Dave Winfield. And I always forget the name of the third person, even though I can see his face. He's a Twins broadcaster, and he broadcasts Yeah, Jack, Jack Morris. Jack Morris. Yeah. Why I keep blanking Jack's name, I don't know. But, yeah, the, <laughs> the, the winner of the famous Game 7 against the Atlanta Braves. But, um, but yeah, that area well, to have three hall of fame and what and i know you kind of spoke about it earlier but any other comments about what brought that to happen
3: well i think an outsider's perspective would tell you that maybe three hall of fame hockey players would come out of st paul right but most likely not baseball we're just not known as a, as being a particular hotbed uh, mainly because the seasons are so short here um you know you're eventually compete at the collegiate level and professionally against guys that who played way more baseball than you did growing up just because of the climate situation. Um, and you know, to add to that list, we, you know, Joe Maurer will be going on that hall of fame ballot in a few years and, and, uh, potentially we could make it four. So, um, I don't know. I, I think it's not really a prideful thing, but, it's you know to think that I, I, I played against you know I played in the same playgrounds as Dave did in St. Paul and Jack and I were competitors in high mm-hmm. school. Um, I I just think it's 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 a kind of a one of those cool trivia facts. And one of the highlights really the All Star game was at the Metrodome in 1985, and um, all three of us made the American League team. So. Um, oh, that's you know, really cool. For, yeah, the three of us got to play in an all-star game in our hometown and represent the city. It was it was a nice moment for us.
1: Again, this is uh, the JB's Low Tech Podcast, and we're talking with uh, Hall, of, Major League Baseball Hall of Famer Paul uh, Paul Molitor. And um, so, you, how was your, how was your time at the U and your your baseball and whatnot? I know you played under Dick Se- the Great Dick Siebert and. Yeah. Uh, a uh, classmate of yours, I believe you guys were there at some time together. It was the present head coach John Anderson?
3: Yeah, uh, my my my. I only went three years because I signed after my right. junior year. Um, but it was it was a great chapter of life. I, I I think that you know to be exposed to you know a big campus and and enjoy the educational aspect of my experience there. But certainly, it was a social development time too. And, you know, you kind of expand your your friendship circles. You have a chance to play um, a Division One sport and do some travel, um, and and you kind of, for the first time, see how you match up not only against Minnesota athletes but other athletes from around the country. Um, John Anderson, who was still there, you know, <laughs> just an amazing career he's had. Um, the short story with John was he tried we both tried out the same year as freshmen. Mm-hmm. He, he, he didn't make the team and he right. stayed on the, he stayed on as a student manager. Right. Eventually um, the year, probably right after I left, he took on an assistant coaching job. And it was only a couple of years after that where he got the head coaching job. And now he's been there 40 years, you know, it's just like it'd been a remarkable run. And I would just like to send kudos out to him because everybody that's been through his program, you know, fond, fondly refer to him as 14, which right. is the jersey number he wears, and mm-hmm. um, has just had a tremendous legacy, legacy there, and has really had influence on a lot of people going on to be very successful in life, not just necessarily their baseball.
1: Yeah, he he always starts the season, and his recruitment speak uh, pitch to parents is not only is he here to possibly get your child to the majors. Or the next step of baseball, but also the next fifty years of life, which a lot of people don't think about as coaches as they recruit, and um, hopefully a lot more will start to think that way because it's you know at some point it all ends, it, even in the major league it all ends, and you got to do something else after that.
3: Well, it's 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 very wise, but it, in some in some ways it's it's just common common sense to, to have a broader perspective of your, you know, of your, of your lot of your years that you're going to live. Um, I always say that about, you know, I I played 21 years in the major leagues and when I retired, it it had been half my life because I was 42 upon retirement. And, um, you know, it's just the game, the game waits for no one. It's, (laughs) you know, I mean, you're all going to be left in the, it's trail somewhere along the way, no matter how long you play the game and and to have john's perspective on you know the 50 years or whatever it is that you're going to live that's that's what your college life sets you up for and i think that's a a tremendous selling point that has been one of the reasons he's been so successful in that role
1: yeah i mean that that hearing that even had an effect on me because it was like you know yeah that's right you know i i can only be a student manager for so long what am i going to do once i get out of here you know
3: yeah yeah, and you know what? I, I, I just as an aside, it made me think of, um, you know, I have uh, a 15-year-old son who is an aspiring athlete, and I want right. to encourage, I want to encourage his dreams. Right. But I also feel, I, as a parent, to, you know, have a voice to remind him that, you know, I hope you play as long as you can and get as much out of your athleticism as you possibly can, but you have to broaden you know your your goals as far as what you're going to try to accomplish through your education and find something that you have a passion for outside of sports because even if you make make it to a, a professional level there's there's going to be a lot of life to live after that so i think it's that it's a wise thing and it's something as parents we should consider and how we try to raise our kids
1: so um your years at the university were there any uh championships or uh... Or, I know there were um, successful seasons. Yeah, excuse me.
3: Um, yeah, we 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 did win uh, win the Big Ten. Our our team was the last Gopher team to make it to the College World Series, which was 1977. So it's been a long a long drought as far as that's concerned. But um, yeah, so we we had some really good teams, and um, it was highlighted by a trip to Omaha to play in the College World Series.
1: Okay. Why don't you go ahead and try to g- clear your throat there, uh, yeah, I know. Paul? Um, I'm, just, <clears>
3: throat> I'm just grabbing some water. I'm okay. Fine. Just a little raspy.
1: Yep. Um, and that's, yeah, you're right. The last time that the University of Minnesota went to the College World Series. Now, I've traveled many a times with my, you know, in my times with gopher baseball to, uh, sure. to uh, regionals and whatnot, but we never got you know over the hump how was that experience to omaha
3: yeah well um the, you know the college baseball formats changed now it used to be there used to be eight regions across the country that would host four teams and you'd have eight people that would get to omaha right now now you don't only really have to win uh, a, a four-team region if you're successful in that venture then you're advanced to a um uh, uh, series uh, two out of three against another team so it brings more more clubs into the pool as far as having an opportunity but it's a it's a tough road and and for the golfers in the northern programs um, they almost invariably have to travel to some of these you know either yep. you know southern schools whether it's california or florida or oklahoma or texas and you're going into pretty difficult environments to try to be successful. Um, the last time the Gophers hosted a region, it was just maybe three or four years ago. And I was right. out there for, for, for their games as they defeated, I think it was UCLA to, uh, to advance to the super regionals. And eventually I think they lost the national champions out there in Oregon, but right. yeah, it, it's a tough, it's a tough road to get to the college world series. But um, you know, for, for us, you know, the year that we made it, we, we did have a really really outstanding year we were able to host the region and um through that which got us that trip to omaha
1: yeah it, um yeah it's very difficult for northern schools to get past the regional part and then to um you know to even get past the um super regional but yep. uh we've been having a little success lately with like schools like indiana and michigan and whatnot making that trek. The other thing right. people have to think about with northern baseball, the, the, the warm-weather schools can continue to work out and practice outside all year long where we're, you know, if you're lucky, you have some type of indoor facility um, that you can train in. And
3: Yeah, and, and the NCAA has tried to balance that out by limiting, you know, the amount of full-team practices you can have and all those type of things. And, and I'm glad they did that. You know, we used to right. make our – our, our our first trip every year used to be to Texas, and we would travel down there and play teams like Texas Lutheran, the University of Texas, Texas A and M, Sam Houston. Mm-hmm. But when we when when we would get down there and play in Austin against Texas, for example, I think the one year I went down there as a freshman, they were like twenty five and three by the time we got there, <laughs> right. and and we're coming out of the old field house, and so it it was a little bit challenging, but but certainly it was uh you know playing against some of the teams like that was beneficial as far as seeing where where you kind of were at that stage both individually and collectively as a team
1: oh you just brought up memories of old emphysema hall as we used to call it the, the, <laughs> the, the black dirt of the old field house which has been refurbished now and just a fabulous looking place on campus but um yeah it was just all black dirt in there and when it was a student manager for football. Would go in there for the third practice of the day. Yes, we had three a day practices in football back then, and you um, the would Sema just Hall. Yeah,
3: I i had forgotten that nickname. But uh, <laughs> the old field house, they they had a they had a baseball diamond. It was all dirt, right? And it was and it was surrounded by a net, and outside the net was a was a running track. You know, yes. so the, I mean, it, the the setup to think that what was what the university was trying to accomplish and having different sports use the same facility. <laughs> yes. That was, it, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't very conducive to uh, a, a healthy environment. And, you know, we'd be in there from, you know, when schools start back up in January mm-hmm. after the Christmas break and we'd be in there for 10 weeks day right. after day. And, and, you know, we, we couldn't wait to get to Texas. I mean, right. That was, just you know, get out there and, and see some real grass and get a chance to breathe some fresh air. It was uh, it was welcome relief, to say the least.
1: And now with the, the facilities they have over there, maybe if they get a weather break, they can get outside earlier because you know they have the field turf field at right. the stadium and, um, but also, uh, they share a uh, a more conducive indoor facility with uh, with the softball program, which is very, you know, very time uh helpful and you know also athletically helpful for the players so
0: yeah
3: they, they certainly can accomplish a lot more and get prepared to start a season with the facilities they have now which is good to see right. and you know we got we got that new stadium built i don't know seven eight nine i don't know how many years ago um after siebert field had kind of out yes. <laughs> its um practicality and so that's really been beneficial the fact that they have the turf field and and uh you know they with the weather we we have we're faced with in april um they still have a chance to get a lot of their games in so that's a good thing
1: right well and you get through your 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 3 years at the University of Minnesota and you get uh now do you get drafted again or did you sign as a free agent out of college no
3: uh, no i um i had to go through the draft protocol again and i was uh i went from, I think, a 26th round pick out of high school to being a first round pick after my third year at the university. Uh, baseball requires you either to be a, you know, uh, you have to complete at least three years before right. you're eligible for the draft. So mm-hmm. um, it worked out great. I, I kind of worked my way up the draft board somehow during the course of that season, and um, I was picked third, um, preceded by a couple guys that. Uh, end up having good careers. Harold Baines was the number one pick Yeah, um, that, that particular year and had an outstanding career with the White Sox. And I think there's a pitcher named Bill Gullickson who went second, who pitched for a long time as well. And then I was the third pick. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, we were still competing at that time, getting ready for the College World Series when the draft occurred. So, you know, I was just floating through that entire experience down there in Omaha and and looking forward to Hopefully doing as well as we could in that World Series, but also knowing that I had an opportunity to you know, join the professional ranks once that, once that Omaha experience concluded.
1: Uh, how long was your stint in the minors? I don't think it was that long.
3: I was lucky. I I, I was assigned to, a, to Low A-Ball, which for me was the Midwest League in a little town called Burlington, Iowa. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, by the time I got down there in, in mid to late June, you know, we uh, played about two, two and a half months down there. We won the Midwest League Championship, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then the following year, I was invited to Major League Spring Training. And I think it was just to be more of an experiential thing that they – thought would be helpful to me but it turned out because of some things that transpired near the end of that first spring training for myself where i was able to make the team you know right. so i went from low a ball to the big leagues which doesn't happen every day and uh i got to skip right over high a double a and triple a and um at, at 21 years old i was i was playing in milwaukee so it was it was a big leap but you know i, I didn't really know any better at the time it, <laughs> it just it, you, know, you, you take advantage, you get, your, <clears throat> you get your foot in the door, and then you try to just wedge it in there the best way that you can.
1: Well, for those who don't know, the, uh, there was an, an injury, I believe, with the uh, Brewers that also played a part of it, and you wound up uh, filling in for a – and then holding on to the position well, of another Hall of Famer. I, um,
3: ironically, it, it turned out to be my best friend in baseball and right. Robin Yao, too. yep um uh, also was in the hall of fame and he had <clears throat> he was he was about the same age as me but he had already played four years in the major leagues by the time I got there he was uh 18 year old shortstop um playing there you know when I was still in college and um yeah he got hurt at the end of that spring training and I was supposed to be uh, assigned to triple a and uh um but when he got hurt um which was, which was only about a week prior to the start of that 78 season when I was informed that I was going to make the club. So it's kind of, like I said, the the irony is that, you know, Robin and I's careers were intertwined in the fact that his injury enabled me to get there maybe sooner than I was expected to. And then to go on and have him as a teammate for 15 years and, and consider him still a good friend today. And um, yeah, it's just hard to imagine that, you know, you're talking 40 some years ago when that happened and but it was uh, it was an opportunity that that came my way, and and thankfully, I think part of it was the, the the Dick Siebert instruction that I had had. I was a pretty good foundational player, and I was able to get to the big leagues at a pretty young age and not embarrass myself. So,
1: so I'm uh, to backtrack real quick. Uh, you just when you made that statement, the Dick Siebert Foundation was still, which still flows through John Anderson. Can you sure. just quickly talk about that?
3: Well, part of it was that, you know, we talked about the field house and being in there for 10 weeks before our season would start each year. Um, you you know, it was a great opportunity to pound home the fundamentals of the game, whether it was on the defensive end, you know, how to, you know, how, how, how our team worked together collectively defensively. You know, you established um, things from, you know, just routine plays to bunt defenses to pitcher's fundamentals. And then, and then you also had opportunities to, to work on your base running because there would be situations that you could practice inside like that. So I just think that, you know, obviously he wanted individual skills to flourish, but he was going to make sure that his teams were not going to be the type of teams that beat themselves with foolish mistakes and not understanding the basics of good fundamental baseball. And I think that plays anywhere. I mean, you know, we try to talk about today's game and and unfortunately i i parts of it that I don't like is that I, we're not you know we don't we don't see a lot of the you know the base running or defense being stressed as much as the offensive side of the game the the analytics and, and it's how it, uh, it affected people's how they go about hitting the baseball and trying to elevate the baseball and it's, it's all about you know. Don't make any outs on the bases now because we want 27 outs out of the batter's box right. because that's that's the way we feel like we're going to score a run. So I, I guess long answer, there's no question that that, that playing under Siebert's program was, was a huge cornerstone for me and how I looked at the game moving
1: forward. So uh, soon after you made it to the majors, another first happened for you, and that was playing in your first World Series. How was that and playing against the team that originally drafted you?
3: Um, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I just got, you know, just concluded another World Series, um, you know, just a short time ago. And I can't help but every time I watch a fall classic now to be reminded of those experiences that I had in participating in that. It really is the pinnacle professionally to, you know, to play in a championship series like that, where you know that you're going to be the, hopefully the last team standing. I think I was 25 when I got to the World Series my first time and um, kind of somewhat presumptuously thought it would, it would happen more than right. only one more time down the road. But, um, yeah, it, the game was a little different. You know, you only had to advance through one series to get to the World Series. We didn't have wild card. We didn't have the extra divisions. It was four teams that got in and uh, – you know, it was we had to we had to beat a California Angels team to get to the World Series that had uh, a lot of very recognizable names, Hall of Fame players. I mean, you know, you know Rod Carew was, was on that team and Reggie Jackson and Fred Lynn. I mean, they were they were loaded, and sometimes somehow we got through them and was able to get on go on to play your St. Louis Cardinals. Yes, <laughs> we back in there in 1982, so. Um, it was great. It was it was a little bit of a whirlwind. I think as a young player, maybe you don't slow it down mentally and visually as well as you would like to. Um, it gets a little blurry in that regard. Um, and unfortunately, we, you know, we uh, we had a we had a three to, three two in terms of uh, a lead in that series before we had to return to St. Louis, and uh, we ended up losing both games on there. So we had we we didn't go home with the championship that we had sought. But it was still a tremendous experience. And uh, my little aside on that series is Raleigh Finger is one of the greatest uh, relievers in baseball history. was on the shelf for us at that time. And right. I always felt that that was, a, that was a big piece that was missing in, uh, in us being able to close out that series.
1: Well, also, you go back to St. Louis and you have to face Whitey Ball at its fullest on that <laughs> AstroTurf. I mean, right. that it's not like the, the, the field turf you see now. That stuff was, you know hard as a brick and they would chop the ball and run like rabbits and you know still bases and whatnot so
3: yeah they were they were very athletic and whitey herzog who was a tremendous manager he kind of knew how to shape his roster to you know uh find ways to you know benefit from the speed game you know from you know Ozzy smith and uh willie mcgee and you know they 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 had guys that just flew all over the park right. both off, offensively on the base pass but defensively they could really flash some weather too so
0: um
3: yeah they they uh they had a you know a great team and they they found a way to come back and snatch that series away from us
1: so as your career moves on you you know you you know, you go through free agency. You sign big contracts. You play in All Star games. You're, yeah, you you get to travel the world. Uh, what's what what's going on in your thoughts at that period of time?
3: Yeah, um, you know, I I, I played in uh, Milwaukee. I was there fifteen years, which is a, a long chapter or, or long tenure in in one organization. Um, and I kept thinking we'd get back to a world series at some point and we got close a few times, but just never could quite get over the hump. Um, you know, I was, I was fortunate that, you know, when I did be finally reach free agency, um, later on in my career, I had I, hoped to finish as a brewer. Um, we were kind of going through a period in our game where the large market, small market, um, differentiation was growing and, um, It just wasn't going to work out for me to go back there, and and I had an opportunity to, uh, from a few clubs, but Toronto was, the the Blue Jays were very um, enticing for me. They were coming off a world championship in 1992. I knew that they still had the core of their, uh, their, their player base that I thought was going to make that team very competitive and a chance to repeat, and that's where I ended up landing which turned out to be a really good, <clears throat> a really good decision because mm-hmm. we, were able, we were able to uh, get back into the World Series and, and win. So that, you know, of all, the, of all the things I'm grateful for in the game, um, you know, 21 years and, and having, you know, one year where I could say that I played on the, the last team standing and I, I'm indebted for the Blue Jays for that experience.
1: How is that celebration, you know, in first person?
3: Um, yeah, you know, Toronto, a beautiful city, a very, you know, multicultural. Um, it's kind of like, it's got a lot of New York flavor to it. You know, there's, there's little Italy and there's Chinatown and just, uh, you know, they're, they're on fire for hockey, obviously the, with the, with the, with the maple leaves up there, but, but the Blue Jays carved their niche and, um, I don't know if people can understand this, but. The year that I, my first year that we went up there, uh, we drew. We were the first team to ever draw four million fans, which means that over an 81 game season, you're having averaging 50,000 fans per game, and it was just an incredible environment, um, you know. And and to and to win, uh, we won at home on a, on a on a dramatic home run by Joe Carter. It was only the second time in World Series history where the series ended on a home run. And you know it was just pandemonium, and um you know, we had a beautiful parade through the city, and i would I think they said there was close to a million people that came out for that parade and and just to be able to bask in that moment and and, and realize that all the time and effort and work and sweat that you had invested into your career, um, it was just kind of that crowning moment where you could kind of just really. Sit back and enjoy the fact that you were you played for a world championship team.
1: Was uh cito Gaston the manager?
3: Yeah, Cedo Gaston was my manager. Um, he he's just uh he was a tremendous leader, he he was a man's man. The, what I learned from him, you know, eventually having a chance to manage myself, was he he just had a way of showing tremendous respect to his players. You know, he asked. You know, for certain certain things in return, but um, never threw anybody under the bus. Always had our backs, and um, had a, just a great vision and understanding of the game. He really was a, a smart uh, hitting instructor, which he had spent a lot of time doing before he took the manager's job. But uh, yeah, I just have a lot of respect for him, and and glad that I had a chance to share that experience with him.
1: If I'm, cor- I believe I'm correct. He's the first uh, minority manager to win the World Series.
3: I think he might have been. I was trying to, you know, not a lot of um, people have had an opportunity to do that as right. far as, and you know, you think people like Frank Robinson and different people that uh, didn't get a chance to, to win a World Series in that capacity as a manager. Um, and Cito and Cito did it twice, so pretty nice, pretty nice things to have on your resume.
1: So you you, you know you finish up your time in Toronto and, and you wind up home. How was that to come back home?
3: Yeah, kind of full circle. You know, I, uh, I you know, I, by the time my third year in Toronto had completed, you know, I, I was forty years old and didn't know how long I was going to play. You know, I had dreamt about playing for the Twins as a kid, but you know, at some point you say, "Well, it's probably not going to happen." <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah. and then, sure enough, um, you know, the tw- I, I, that we that that winter Toronto was going to kind of take on a new direction. They were going with kind of a youth movement. So my fit up there was no longer a good match. And um, I remember sitting down with Tom Kelly, the famous twins manager that off season. and And he, he painted out a picture of how he saw, you know, the twins club in 1996 to have a chance to be, you know, something special and, and for me to have an opportunity to come back home and play, it was—it <clears throat> just seemed like the right thing to do—to be able to come back and finally don a Twins uniform. Um, you know, I think when you play the game, when you play against other players, you imagine who would be a great, great teammate to have, mm-hmm. and and Kirby Puckett was always one of those guys for me right. when I play when I played against him, and so I was really looking forward to that. And uh, you know, the maybe biggest down you know, or disappointment of coming back to Minnesota was, it was my first spring back here when, when Kirby, when Kirby incurred the, uh, the glaucoma and was forced into an early retirement. So that was, you know, one of the, one of the downsides of, of of coming back here, but in the, in the big scheme of things to come back and play for the twins and finish off my career playing here, it was, uh, you know, it was pretty special for me to be able to do that.
1: Well, in that talk with TK, or Tom Kelly, um,
3: yeah.
1: did he plant the seed for what was coming next in your life, which was uh, instructing and uh, managing?
3: Um, I, I don't think so much initially. Um, I just remember him kind of talking a lot about how the the 95 team had uh, finished their year, um, the things that he saw that he felt were integral pieces of a team that could get back into championship contention and um you know he believed it first and foremost but it was a it was a convincing argument and and you know I didn't really lead on that Minnesota was kind of my first choice at that <laughs> right. time because that's kind of where I was hoping I would end up but that that's kind of sealed sealed the deal for me I don't think the coaching managing things kind of you know, in, in the back of your mind, as you wind down your career, you're, you're kind of thinking about what your next chapter is going to be about. And I just remember kind of coming to, coming to, you know, being at peace with the fact that baseball was what I knew was what I loved. And that I thought I had accrued enough information and knowledge that maybe I find some type of role where I could pass it on. Um, I wasn't sure exactly what that was going to look like, but, you know, eventually that took shape and, you know, I've stayed in the game in, in some capacity, mo- mostly coaching or managing over the past 20 years now. so
1: yeah, you, you became uh, – I think you started off as a roving instructor in, in uh, hitting and base running. Yeah,
3: you know, I, I did coach for um, Tom Kelly's team for a couple of years back in 2000 and 2001. Um, I was on his coaching staff. And then gardy and then, uh, came in, and, and uh, I ended up moving into a minor league Player development role, which I did for a long time, and I focused primarily base running. Um, but I, I've always thought that coaches, um, even at the major level, minor league level, that there should be some crossover. You should be able to, you know, the hitting hitting coaches can help the pitching coaches, and the pitching coaches can help the hitting coaches. Right. And, but, but my primary um, areas were were infield defense and base running were the two things that I was asked to kind of be the the stress points of my. Uh, of my instruction
1: yeah the uh the late pitching coach todd oaks would always say the key to baseball was locate the fastball and no matter if you were a hitter or a pitcher locating the fastball was the the key to the game as he always said
3: yeah i i still think that that plays although we've seen it's kind of ironic that in in the major league game now um, the average velocity is higher than it's ever been right mean you can even though I, I still argue a little bit that they measure velocity different than they did 20 years ago. So I, I don't think it's as significantly higher as it appears to would be with the numbers you see on television. But they, they throw it harder than they ever have, and yet the f- fastball percentage is lower than it's ever been. So um, locating your fastball is always going to be a huge part of success for a pitcher, but they certainly know how to spin it now too. And it's for a hitter too. I mean, um, pitch recognition and, and understanding, you know, what kind of swing you need to put on what pitch is, is for me, something that's not taught enough. Um, yeah, there, you know, I don't like that. We're kind of going to the one swing mentality, which is more of a, uh, a way to create lift or launch angle as they say. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it the fastball location. Um, I, I, Those guys that can master that usually are going to be pretty successful.
1: So you do a few years in the minors and then you uh, you get the call from your hometown team again. Yeah. um, And that's to manage the big club. Yeah. (laughs) What were your thoughts as that was uh, taking place?
3: Uh, You know, I kind of thought, you know, I thought about managing, you know, at at earlier stages. I, I thought maybe that opportunity had passed me by. But, you know, lo and behold, circumstances just kind of came together where, you know, Gardy was ready to, you know, do something different. He had been there for a long time. And Terry Ryan, who was a general manager, I worked with as a player and as a coach in the player development for a long time. And um, I, he asked me if I would be interested in interviewing for that job. And, I, you know, you're always considering your, own, your personal circumstances, but it felt like the right time to give it a shot. Didn't know I was going to get the job, but when I was notified that you know indeed they were ready to make that commitment, I, I couldn't have been more excited. I mean, when you think about it, you know, having a chance to to play as long as I did, and and then you know to work for the Twins where I grew up, and then have a chance to manage them, um, it was it was a little bit surreal. You know, I, I hadn't had any man, managerial experience, even though I felt like I, you know, was was ready for it because of my Experiences in uh, various aspects of the game, um, and I loved—I loved every minute of those four years. I had a chance to do that. We had, you know, we we had a couple of years that were pretty good. We mm-hmm. made it into the playoffs one year. We had one year that was particularly disastrous too. I think we set the all-time record for losses in the year 2016, and that was that was tough. But like, it's just like life, though. You know, I mean, right. you, you take you take you take the bad experiences and the adversities and. And you, you know, you learn from that and hopefully your character grows and your integrity grows. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I I look back really fondly on on the chance that I had a chance to manage the Minnesota Twins for four years. It was, it was a great experience. And the only disappointment was that I had hoped to um, bring another world championship back to uh, the state of Minnesota. And and we didn't, uh, didn't achieve
0: those goals.
1: But then some, uh, as that was going on and after that happened, then some personal um, accolades hit that I spoke about at the beginning of the show, um, uh, being named to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, the College Baseball Hall of Fame, Mm. and also the M Club Hall of Fame. Um, That must be very gratifying for you.
3: Um, Yeah, they all are, and, you know, they're – They're kind of inclusive, yet they're still kind of separate. I mean, you know, the the university's history, um, uh, as far as their you know their athletic history, it's just you know so many people that have that have graced that campus and uh, had a chance to excel in their you know selected sport. You know, baseball actually, I think the longest running program at the university. So, um, I was. I was honored by that. It's, it, I, I feel that the, you know, they, they gave me great opportunity. They gave, gave me a chance to be a college athlete and, and, and eventually to, to enter that was, was special. The college hall of fame, um, you know, again, there's, there's just so many good programs and good players that have, that have used college baseball as a stepping stone and to be recognized. And that was, was very, uh, um, very humbling but it was it was a great honor and then of course the baseball hall of fame it's a pretty small fraternity and you know you enter into a group of you know when i first went in i mean all the guys that had helped fuel my dream you know the um you know the bob gibsons and the willie mazes and uh mickey mantles and and you know all of a sudden you're 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 Breaking bread with these guys and it was uh overwhelming especially those first couple of years and now that it's been a while you know you're kind of <laughs> you've transitioned into being one of the older guys right. in the group now you know we got all these these young guys that have been coming in and yeah. it, it makes it, it's it's pretty fun though but every every year that we go out there for the for the induction weekend it's it's one of the best weekends of the year for sure and then this past year we had a little bit of a smaller gathering because of still coming out of covid but you know, watching Derek Jeter go in, who I had a chance to play against when he was a young player, and Larry Walker, and then of course Ted Simmons, who was my teammate in Milwaukee, went in this year. Yeah. So, it's just, um, it, it's it's just a really uh, great group of men that aren't. They weren't just great players; they're great ambassadors for the game. And um, I, I still, you know, I, every year when you go, they take the group picture, and then you get a nice photo that they send you, and you look at it, and you look at the people you are just surrounded by it's uh it's a it's a very special fraternity
1: yes ted simmons uh, or as we call him in st louis simba and i Mm -hmm. never and i never knew what that meant but everybody knew his nickname was simba you know
3: i don't know the origin of that nickname either but i do know that playing with him he was just one of the smartest guys i ever played with and you know to be a switch hitting catcher and uh play as long as he did it was uh Quite a career. I was a little disappointed for him, kind of like Jack Morris. They had to wait far too long to to receive their due, but uh, better late than never.
1: Yeah, people in St. Louis wanted to hang Whitey when he traded. (laughs) Yeah, when he traded Simba. So, yeah, it was, you know, he lucky that he turned around and won a World Series because people forgave him after that. So,
0: well,
3: you know how that works out. You know, Ted Ted goes to. To milwaukee and sure enough we play st louis in the world series <laughs> right daryl porter who we got traded for was the most valuable player in the world series it's just it's amazing how those things work out sometimes
1: so as we uh, start to wrap up here paul uh the great game of baseball itself um it's going through changes um there could be a a, a labor stop this off season. Mm-hmm which none of us hope, but it looks like right. things are pointing in that direction. What are some of the things you think baseball can do to help itself attract sure. um, younger, yeah. not only players, but younger fans?
3: Yeah, um, I'll try not to get too long-winded. The, the labor situation is unfortunate. You know, I went through a lot of labor stoppages while I played. You know, gratefully, we've had labor peace since 1994-95, which is a long run, Um but it looks like things are going to maybe come to a head this winter. I think the expiration date is December 1st. And I just think it's probably been so long that, you know, owners are probably going to test the players unity a little bit. And the Mm -hmm. players are, you know, they're historically, the baseball union has been one of the strongest unions out there. And and they understand that they're going to have to hold their ground to keep some of the rights that they've earned justifiably. Um, But that's, it'll work out whether we have a stoppage into the spring or or whatever. I'm not sure how that's going to play out, but um, I'm hoping that it doesn't interrupt the flow of a regular season for 2022. The game itself. I I think our biggest problem is it's become less, less appealing to the eye. Um, The action is more limited. Mm -hmm. The the time, the time average time between a ball put in play. um, is just too long between the strikeouts and the walks and the home runs. And, um, you know, you want your game needs to be aesthetically pleasing for people to wanna to watch it. It's not just enough to say it's the best players in the world. You have to make it entertaining. So I, I like that they're be, they're exper- they're experimenting with some of the things in the minor leagues, the pitch clocks, the the bigger bases, they're you know um I was down in double A this year watching our the twins players and they, they 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 put two infielders on each side of second base and they had to be in the dirt and they were trying to get, you know, see how how much of a factor the shift has affected the action of the game. Um, And I really think that, you know, as an old school guy, I I love the analytics. Uh, It helped me as a manager. Mm -hmm. But um, I I really think that we have to, you know, keep things that made baseball great when we watched it as kids or played it as kids. You know, the base running. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like the trend to the, the bullpen, you know, dominating games in terms right. of how many innings they're pitching compared to starters, just, just things, some of the old school stuff, um, guys who can put the ball in play, advance a runner. I mean, you know, you, you know, you know, bunting for hits, whatever, whatever it is. I, I think that they're, they're, they're trying to find ways to make the game a little bit more old school in terms of other things having more important than just being able to hit the ball over the
1: fence uh do you <clears throat> excuse me do you think the game is over analytic um i i think
3: I, I guess my overall answer would be yes i think that we've taken it and you know we, we we can we can measure everything now um but i i don't think all your meetings with players should be on computers you know i i right I, well, just the fact that we've lost a little bit of the human component to it and uh, whether it's how you make up your lineup or decisions that you make in a game. Uh, these games get are, are way more pre-scripted now than they used to be. And um, that's why I'm glad to see guys like Dusty Baker down there in Houston mm-hmm. who, who who used the analytics plenty. He has to, but he also, you know, was still, still trusting what he saw and what he knew about his players. I, that's one thing the analytics don't tell you is about how a guy, how a guy handles a, 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 a moment of pressure or emotion and and those are the kind of things that that should influence your decisions in game that um make the good managers successful
1: yeah as as a fan of baseball myself it drives me not to see the, the pitching the constant p- pitching changes the yeah. um step in the box step out of the box the uh the the yeah. long time well, to to uh throw a pitch and all those things you know sure. when when Baseball is compared, being compared to, you know, the other major league sports like football and basketball and, and even hockey and soccer. Um, right. There's constant well, flow and constant action and, you know, in this short intention span world we live in yeah. uh, to have young well, you people. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
3: No, I was just going to say, yeah, you know, there's so many things about that that I agree with. I mean, you know, I used to love the postseason and watch it and the part of it was the starting pitcher matchups, you know. Um and when I was a kid, you know, you get Kofex versus Jim Cott or whatever it was. And then through the generations you'd have you know, these teams in the World Series they they the starter matchups was a big part of it. And when mm-hmm. when you watch it when you watch a game, who's on T V the most? The starting pitcher. Right. I mean and now it's this postseason that there was so many games where they were bullpen games and they're they're running out relievers to start the game and um I don't know. I, I just, I don't think that that plays plays well overall. I, I get it that people are trying to strategize the best way to win, but I still think, <clears throat> you know, over 162 games, you better have some starting pitchers that can give you some innings. Otherwise you're going to, you're going to kill your bullpen. And that, that's what happens to some of these teams in the postseason. Right. They just those guys have been overused so much that they just don't have, they're not as effective um, as they were in earlier in the year.
1: And, for me, maybe I've been around coaches and managers way too much in my life, and um, but it just bothers me that some <laughs> whiz kid from uh, some out East College is uh, secretly or, or not so secretly is having a big effect on how the team is being managed and run on a day-to-day basis where they're not in the dugout, they're not in the locker room or the clubhouse. And um, they don't know what a player is going through or, sure. or thoughts that are going in his, wow. in his mind, how they feel, how they react. It just, yeah. that piece just, and I know uh, your friend Patrick Royce, talks about that all the time, but it's, to me, it's just true.
3: Yeah. Well, I, I, I respect the guys that are smart and they have the education and they can evaluate numbers and things and give, and give you opinions but you still need some—you still need some baseball people in the room, you know, people that have lived it or played it or experienced it. And I, I think there's a balance there that we're—we're, we're, you know, you asked me if there's too many, too much analytics. I think we're going to eventually find a better way to balance right. uh, the two sides of the equation.
1: Okay, uh, if you were a commissioner, what changes would you make, or how would you fix things?
3: <laughs> um, I'd, I'd eliminate the shift. Okay um it's it's particularly penal to left-handed hitters because of the way we can shape the diamond and, mm-hmm. in fact that first base is to the right not to the left and and um that's something that i would do i think the batting average of ground balls in play has gone from like 265 to like 210 so i i just think there would i think more hits is better for the game um so i i would do that um I would put in a pitch clock for sure. I would try to expediate the way the pace of the game. These four-hour and ten-minute World Series games that end at, um twelve fifteen in the morning in New York—they're they're just not going to fly in the long run. Um, the one rule that I—you know—there's some other things are, are, are regarding pace of play that I would consider, but the one rule that I've always not liked, and it's kind of just a, as a sidebar—that um, mm-hmm. that that running box down the first base line, right that's got to go. <laughs> I just see it it's always bothered me. If you run a straight line from the right hand of batter's box to first base, you never get into the running lane or that they want you to run in. It's just very counterintuitive. So that's one run, that's one rule I would eliminate for sure.
1: Okay. Well, I and I never thought of that, but yeah. It's it's a, you know, it makes you readjust your pattern which slows you down. So and um, closest distance between two points is a straight line. I right.
3: don't want you to do that because they want to have a throwing lane. Never understood that. So
1: and um, on on the shift and maybe you can answer this for me because you know common f- people like me why don't they just hit where the ho- hole is or just lay down a bunt? Why don't players do those things?
3: Well, to be honest with you when I managed I tried to get guys to to think that way, at least sometimes if the circumstances called for getting on base was more important than you maybe hitting a home run. Um, but, you know, we're, we're the game and the analytics are telling teams and staffs and that now that the best chance to score runs is by driving the ball doubles and home runs are what they're looking for. And if you're trying to guide a pitch to the other field, just to try to get a hit, um, they they don't think that that, that what pays off in the long run in terms of overall offensive statistics. So, I don't know. I I I would I can only imagine. I would have loved to have hit against the shift. <laughs> or, you know. <laughs> right. So there's got to you know it's again it, it if the situation calls for it. I, and that's one thing. The postseason this sure, year, I was glad that it looked like some people actually thought about those kind of things more so they do than they do over the course of a 162 game season. So.
1: Yeah, uh, the the chick digs the long ball philosophy. I think hurts baseball a little bit too. So,
0: yeah, n-
3: never has the percentage of runs scored in baseball. Um, I can't remember the number. It's over fifty percent now of, of of runs that are scored on home runs. You know, I, I just I think people like to see you know innings put together where there's right. you know a bun and a hit and a single and a double and base running and guys flying around. And they just say that the pitching is so good now that, that, that teams don't feel like they can string together innings. So they think it's better to, you know, have the approach of just maybe hopefully getting a getting pitch you can drive and, and try to score that way, which I think makes for kind of a boring game. But that's kind of what we're looking at.
1: Well, to finish this up, Paul, and I'm so uh, thankful for your uh, giving of your time. Um, what are you doing now?
3: Um, uh, well, for, you know, let me say, I, I appreciate you having me on. Um, it's, it's good to talk the game and it was good to cross paths with you. It's been mm-hmm. a while. Um, yeah, I, i I'm still in a, in a, a smaller role with the twins. I'm doing a little
0: bit,
3: excuse me. What, <laughs> um, I'm still doing a little bit of what I used to. I, I I've traveled to the minor leagues this past year and, and um, Focused on, you know, some baseball-specific things, but more it was an observer's role, um, trying to not only mentor players but some of the young coaches in our organization. Mm-hmm. And I hope to do it again um, next year. Um, you know, it's convenient with St. Paul being the AAA team. Yes. It's just a drive across town. I went down to Wichita a couple of times, Cedar Rapids, and um, I'm hoping that things fall into place where they give me an opportunity to do that again next year.
1: Well, and I'm going to be honest. I ran into Paul about three weeks ago at – and I don't know if it's his favorite restaurant, but my favorite restaurant in town, JD Hoyt's. and Pat made sure that I came over and said hello yeah. to you.
3: Yeah, that was it. Was a it was a nice meeting. I, I you know I love that place too. Pat's great. Um, for those who haven't had a chance to to, you know, um, enjoy or sample their cuisine, you're missing out on some of the best food in town for sure.
1: All right. Well. Again, I want to thank you, Paul, for coming on. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the great Paul Molitor, Baseball Immortality, and uh, a friend of the show, I guess I would say.
3: Yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. I All look right. forward to the next time we cross paths.
1: And this has been the JB's Low Tech Podcast with uh, Baseball Hall of Famer at three levels, Paul Molitor.
2: When you need someone to listen to A lawyer you know and trust. Congratulations to all the Minnesota businesses that scraped through the last year. It sure hasn't been easy, but we've done it together. And while we certainly need to move forward, it's good to reflect on what we've been through and the many losses. Here at Bradshaw and Bryant, we held a lot of Zoom meetings, increased our phone calls, and have done our best to keep up with all the changes while continuing to provide quality work. We'd like to thank everyone that turned to us with their personal injury and criminal needs as well as the courtrooms for bringing the community back together to serve justice. We look forward to being part of Minnesota's growth and success for many years to come. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. I hope you're never injured in a collision, but if you are, don't sign anything till you've talked to us. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Seeking
0: justice for the injured, Bradshaw and Bryant. J.B. Is my name and f***ing up
2: motherfuckers is my game. Right on.
1: Negro, black, African man. Black, black,
2: black. Django. J.B. Damn, Dolomite. Great card kind in of heaven, you know.
0: J.B. Our great Negro sex machine.